This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Writer's Room, where funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny words for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, me, Jeff Cesario. Welcome to the Writer's Room. Uh, it's going to be fun today. This is a, a very uh, special guest who has a new album out. I believe it's his 10th album. Uh, and this one's entitled uh, French Drug Deal. Is that right? Yes. French Drug Deal. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Greg Proops. Look at you oh. in front of a camera. Hello, everybody. Hello, Jeff. I am in front of uh, uh, the storage that is in my storage room. You are in front yeah. of a cat with shades. You look like uh, you're in the room that every comedy club owner goes, look, we're going to clean this out and make it into a dressing room for you guys. <laughs> but, when you know, we have to we haven't finished doing it yet, but we're going to. And then you go back four years later and they're like, right. Well, Tammy got fired. So <laughs> yeah, you remember Tammy. She's not here anymore. <laughs> no, she's got, she got married and then they had to get a restraining order. And so she wasn't able to clean the room out, but. How was your ride in from the airport? Oh, it was good. Yeah. Just terrific. <laughs> what a great baggage carousel you have here. So 10 of these, we're going to talk stand-up writing. We're going to talk room writing, because I believe you've done some of both. Uh, but let's start with the classic um, San Carlos High School Dons. Ah! A little research. I know you went to San Carlos High School. Wow. And the school uh, no longer exists. No. Because it was it was shut down. If I'm not mistaken, due to racial tensions <laughs> that erupted in 1982 when they started bussing kids in from the East Bay or something. And uh, their response was to shut the school. <laughs> it just shut the school down. They didn't even attempt. They didn't even fake tackle the problem. They just said, I right, turn off the lights. We're out of here throw up a fence around this baby and tear it down. And now I believe it's luxury homes in, in uh, for an ironic comedian that has to be near the top of the heap. It's well, you know, luxury white people, subdivision. White people love order, Jeff, as you know, and, yes. and good times. Look at us. Sure. Uh, if you, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you give us money, do we not buy an SUV? Sure. Um, uh, it, there was a uh, race rights when I was in school there in the seventies and uh, the kids were busted in from East Palo Alto, um, which this was during 
um, like I said, the 70s. So East Palo Alto was also known as Nairobi by the residents of the place because it was during the African cultural wave of the 70s. So they decided it would be a good idea. Well, I mean, you know, uh, so they bust in kids from East Palo Alto, about 400 of them. And um, that it went well. I, you know, I had a black lab partner in uh, earth science and this and that. And it was culture shock for us because all of a sudden there were kids with natural forks in their hair, listening to giant boom boxes and playing Stevie Wonder everywhere. And this was a kind of a white suburban school where we liked, you know, like the kids like um what well, was the seventies, Jeff? You'll remember. Oh, sure. Leonard's probably Skinner. got some sticks playing. Yeah, Led Zeppelin. Well, we weren't. You know, we're you're from Minnesota, so that sticks thing. We didn't play Springsteen. I'm from Wisconsin. Don't don't I mean, Wisconsin. Uh, don't play everything at my feet. We, uh, had, we had a we had a good shot. Well, actually, uh, this is a side tangent. We will get back to Greg's youthful problems, which clearly <laughs> made a giant dent in his life, but. Uh, we uh, we I went to high school at a place that had a great uh, music program. So we got into horns. So we were heavily into Tower of Power, which is all East Bay. So oh, we had a mini uh, 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 emotional pipeline to the Bay Area. We just loved all those bands from Azteca and Pete and Coke Escovito to Santana, to all, to all of those bands. We loved all those bands. Uh, oh, what was the great band with Lydia Pence? Um, Cold Blood. Cold Blood, yeah. Loved all of that. Wow, stuff. you're taking me back, man. Funk. I mean, it's yeah. nice to hear that someone from Wisconsin was listening to that kind of uh, funk and Latin music. I saw Tower Power probably more than any other band. Oh, wow. When I was in high school. I saw them eight, ten times sometimes on a dazzling variety of stimulants. And um, they were always good. My cousin went to, my cousin who I'm very close with, just went to see them in, oh golly, Colorado or something a week or two ago. There's like three of them left in the band, believe it or not. Amelia's in the That's band it. and the doctor's in the band. And I think one of the, oh, the drummer. Yeah. Uh, David Garibaldi. Yeah, sure. David Garibaldi, right. Exactly. Yeah. We used to try to transcribe his licks. What did you have a funk? What what yeah. kind of music department was this that we had? Uh, it was just a great uh, music department. We we played stuff in my high school orchestra and high school symphonic band that I didn't play till my senior year of college, and I was a music major. Wow. So we were just great. I mean, like Principal Obus Chicago Symphony Orchestras from my hometown, two top. Uh, uh, both top trumpet players, studio call for about 20 years here in LA, were both from Kenosha. Um, Dan Fornero and John Fumo. Were there enough of okay. Kenosha? <laughs> so it was just great private teaching, a really good public school music program that got us into horns and jazz and the Beatles and funk and everything. And we tried to incorporate that. We would just listen forever to that stuff. We just loved that stuff. Well, that's great to hear. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So we, the, it, that, so now that this, happened. This, and the, this the, got you. So now you're, you're, you're set up. You have some basis for for the for the influx of Nairobi funk right and 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 it's coming in and you have no problem but somehow this, this school district can't handle it well i made an album during uh, right before the plague uh, like in 2019 that summer 
when they were going to close the punchline in San Francisco and find a nice new location that had a green room and a restaurant. But do-gooder stepped in and fucked up my life. And so I'm still playing the same club in the financial district that I've been playing since I was 22 years old. Um, Anyway, that album was going to be called Requiem for a Club That's Still There. And uh, uh, only in comedy. Let's have a fundraiser. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) But isn't it still? Yeah, but we're just going to do it anyway. I would have given anything to have a new club. I mean, it's my home club. You know, I've made all the last three or four albums there. Um, But I just, uh, I always wanted, I don't know, um, the ability to get a hamburger, maybe lay down on a couch, have my own desk with a light. No. Um, A bathroom in the green room, a bathroom. You've seen those. That's happened before. Yeah, you got a basket of Nature Valley rolled oats bars, and you're lucky to have it. (laughs) So I made an album that year that I never put out because I was too lazy during the plague. To I edited it, and I I, anyway, I was having a heart attack. So in that one, I did a long routine about the race riots at our school because neo Nazis showed up in front of our little suburban school where I used to deliver newspapers. Like they dropped my newspapers, you know, and I did whatever. And that's how old I am. I delivered newspapers. Yeah. You have to um, fold them yourself in the trifold. So they yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And wear the, wear the canvas bags and a good so, uh, posy backhand. Right. The, uh, uh, the, uh, the Nazis showed up at our school and then, uh, um, I had a quick lesson on race. I met a black guy in the locker room and we were chatting and we decided to go get stoned. And I remember there were cops everywhere and there was never cops at our school. And um, they stopped us and they said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to work. And they and they said to the black kid, where are you going? Anyone? He's giving me a lift home. And the cop, you know, so we went to the car and we listened to Frampton Comes Alive, which was on the radio and got really stoned. And I remember and you'll love this part, Jeff, we each had our own bag of weed. And the guy said to me, look, let's make this the whole deal. And he reached in his bag and he took a big hunk of weed out and put it in my bag. And I put weed in his bag in that was our bonding Wow! Uh, right after the riots, right? But I mentioned that the cops were white supremacists and nobody laughed on the album. I made a joke about it. And then I said on that album that I've never put out that I'm going to put out next, maybe. Uh, I want it noted that the San Francisco crowd refused to laugh when I said the cops were white supremacists. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that white supremacists would show up at your school to help. <laughs> you know, we have, it's yeah. not enough. There was violence and the school got closed down. Why don't we have some Nazis come by and just sort of sort sure. things out? You know, there's a tradition of it up there. I mean, the Hell's Angels got together and decided oh. to help at Altamont. They were just helping. Yeah, no, you know, there's only two, three famous people from my town. Um, uh, and they are in, in descending order, Dana Carvey. Who's from the other side of San Carlos? He did not go to San Carlos High. He went to Carl Mont, which is a combination wow. of San Carlos and Belmont. Um, Catherine Bigelow, who's older than me, the movie sure. director, the Great Oscar show. winning, and Jennifer Granholm, when Secretary of Energy went to, I went to school with Jennifer Granholm. She was the queen of our junior prom. So wow. She's now the Secretary of Energy. She was governor of Michigan and she was AG of Michigan. So she probably did the best out of everybody. Years ago, you'll like this. I saw her in Grand Rapids at the, what's that place called? Dr. Grins. 
Oh, wow. I don't know if you've ever played that. That's deep. Anyway, it's, it's like three or four story building and it's on the third floor. And, uh, this, you'll like this. This, this is very Midwestern. It was in the winter. So there was a guy in front of Dr. Grins with a reindeer sausage wagon, right? He was cooking uh, sausages sure. and, and slathering them with onions and peppers. And of course it was snowing, but no one in the Midwest ever acts like it's snowing. True. So I, I stood there in my suit with my little hat on and everybody and people no coat, you know, and he handed the hot dog and it was wet because the snow had landed on it. And um, I, I invited Jennifer. I hadn't seen her in ages to come to the show. She was governor. So she, uh, she phones me and I get a call that says, um, this is uh, Governor Grenholm's office. Could you call her back at the state house, please? Or, or she calls me and goes, call me back. And I call and they go, this is the state house. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm calling for Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Grenholm. And Might she goes, well come, come in. her dad. I'm coming to the <laughs> show. tonight." <laughs> right. She's in Lansing. Right. She goes, I'm coming to the show. Where's the capital? Isn't it Lansing? Lansing. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the show. Can you get me a table? I'm like, I'll see what I can do. You know? Uh, <laughs> so the guy who ran the club who picked me up at the airport in the 1987 Toyota Cressida. Tercel. Yeah, sure. The Tercel and had, Hey, just move all that shit off the seat. You know? Yeah, no, that's, I didn't have a chance to clean it up. You know, he, he, uh, had a he looked, like all the restaurant seminar I was busy with. I didn't have a chance. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, uh, he all of a sudden I show up, at the, I call him and I go, the governor's coming. Can you book, give me a table for her? And he's like, yeah, show up at the club. And he's wearing a suit and tie, probably like the first time since oh. he went to the eighth grade or like you said, since he went to his uh, sexual harassment. Diane Ford came through the room. rather <laughs> wear a suit and tie. Right? <laughs> uh, and she says to me, uh, we're backstage. This is some time ago. This is 10, 12 years ago. She goes, um, you've done really well, Greg. And I go, Jennifer. You're chief executive of a state with 20 million people. And I'm telling jokes to drunks in a bar that smells like burnt pizza. <laughs> so the whole doing well. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but as my, our late friend Warren well, Thomas once said to me, the thing that he loved about comedy was perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and it's ever present. So how, what shapes this amazing, uh, if I may, benevolent cynicism that you have, does it come from that upbringing? Was it a decision? Was it natural? It sounds like it was natural. If you're sitting in a car listening to Frampton in a parking lot surrounded by cops trading <laughs> trading smoke with a black dude, I'm guessing there's something natural in you that hates what he sees, but loves the ability to sneakily try to correct it. I would say you're absolutely accurate. Jeff is always, you're an empathetic soul. I, uh, I, I always was, uh, accused of being from the East coast, which I don't know what that means. I assume that meant snide and arch and too fast. Um, even though I'm from California, you can hear by my accent. I have the hella Bay area. Uh, accent. Um, the, uh, uh, I think it was that and that my father was from Brooklyn. And uh, aside from his other 
unbelievable avalanche of faults. Uh, he was a terrible misogynist and, um, it really cured me of that. You know what I mean? Like I was as sexist as the next guy. And I, I have a lot of albums from earlier in my career that I wish weren't as directed at, you know, there's a few women celebrities I really rake, you know? Yeah. Like Jessica Simpson and Brittany from the old days. Right. And I kind of feel slightly bad about that, that I was as harsh as I was with them when surely there were better targets. Um, however, at the time it was hilarious. And, um, uh, and my wife, my wife, uh, who I've been with for ages, um, Jennifer and, and th- that combination of things really cured me of like being a screaming misogynist. Cause that's my biggest complaint about comedy now, you know, is that they really still let guys get away with just being horrible fucking anti-women. Like it's really yeah. wild, you know, like that, that frontier, you know, you can talk about being canceled and all that shit that you like, but no one, as far as I can see, has really been canceled for being horrible about gays yeah. or, or any of that jazz. So it, it, I think it's a combo platter. I'm from a liberal place. What can I tell you? I'm from a really what nice white sharing caring suburb a half hour from san francisco then i moved to san francisco and i spent a million years there and then i moved to london so it's not like i've ever lived in like elk city oklahoma or whatever i did not grow up surrounded by violent christians or any of that shit you didn't spend now, everyone on my mother's side from city, this- south dakota you right? stiff arm that and yet <clears throat> san francisco We've just been diving into a ton of film noir, my wife and I, uh, late at night off TCM. And it it just continues to remind me that the Bay Area is really uh, a blue collar uh, area. That's how it got its start is, is fishermen and industry and the East Bay and trucking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's all Italian. That's all Portuguese. That's all, you know, African-American. There's an influx of, okay, this is the place in California where we're just going to start building shit. So let's get to it. And, you know, it came from that. So there is a rock solid East Coast kind of vibe to the place. The yeah. same ethnic groups, Asian, Irish, Italian, like I say, you yeah. know what I mean? And it's that stew from which then the aroma comes of, of uh, liberalism. I think so. You want to break uh, the, uh, the, the uh, you know, I had a nice run going there. And so I stuck with it with the aroma thing. I liked that. It was a, a, <laughs> Some of my best writing yeah, of the last uh, 20 no, years. See, that. You're, you're riding off the top of your head. I love it. Years ago, uh, um, I did a, 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 what was Al Gore's, uh, channel before he, uh, used all the oh, earth's yeah. resources to make himself gigantic. Oh, current TV. And, um, I, Jennifer Grenon, before she was, uh, secretary of energy had a, a show briefly on current, you know, like a chat political table. And I met a bunch of the women that I went to high school with there and they were all working for her and they were all, sharing, caring liberals. And so at one point there was four or five of us in the room, all from San Carlos, all in San Francisco. Wow. And 
I said to my wife, isn't it funny? Isn't that odd? And she went, no. <laughs> she goes, it's not odd. You're from a liberal fucking suburb. What do you think people are going to do with their lives? They're not going to grow up and be Nazis. They're, you're all, you know, you all had a nice white childhood and, you know, yeah. so uh, that, and then of course, when you get into comedy, uh, you're exposed to other people and go around the country. And so, but I have made a conscious decision to be more and more uh, aware of what I'm talking about. I'm not a big fan of like woke and all that, because I feel like woke is a label that the media stuck on people being polite. My line, I say it on the album. I think if, if you're not, um, if you haven't the manners to not be racist, sexist, homophobic, and transphobic, and you haven't the, um, the wherewithal not to be a, a raging misogynist, maybe comedy is not for you. Maybe being a satirist isn't where you should be because in yeah. order to be a satirist, you have to at the very, uh, if you're going to go to the bottom line, like Carlin who refused to even take a political side, even though you knew which side he was on um, in order that he could, in his words, look at the whole parade and make fun of everybody. Right. You know? Yeah. And then there's your 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 Seth Meyer, whoever you want to think of, uh, uh, po- political comics, um, who generally are liberal. But then there's a few, right, whose names we shall not redo, who we know when we were, you know, worked with and grew up with, who've gone completely off the deep end and are like really think that somehow the world's trying to grab away their ability to say the crappy things they want to say. And that that's the issue. Not that the issue is that the world is shitty, but that yeah, me saying the awful things that I want to say is that that being taken away from me is the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. That's where I'm drawing the line is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's I've kind of made an extra effort to not be, you know, on this album, I noticed I I did a few things that were borderline Robin Williams-esque on the racist meter. Uh-huh. <laughs> Robin, who I worshipped and adored, he did a lot of ethnic characters that were oh uh, yeah. hilarious. And sometimes, I think, in retrospect, you know, well, we're always looking through a new lens, aren't we, Jeff? I mean, part of getting older and part of growing up is that everything changes. You can't. When we, when I started in the early eighties, I'm guessing you started a little bit before me, maybe a shade before you 80, and, 81. Right. And I started right after that, like 82, 83. Um, there were a lot of bad comics. I mean, there were guys doing in San Francisco, Chinese driver jokes yeah. and, and gay jokes and women are bitches. And my girlfriend's are fat. And then when you go on the road, it got worse Then out in the real world. It was. Yeah. I hate Mexicans, you know, they're just like straight up, you know, and you were like, wow, I didn't know you could do that, you know? And then, so I feel like comedy has gotten so much better with the young, young comics in their twenties and thirties would never do that shit. They would just never do it. And the audience won't accept it now either, unless you're in a rednecky place, blah, 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 you know? Right, right. It could have something to do. And this is great because we're dovetailing right into what I wanted to talk about. One of the things I want to talk about, which is writing for stand up. We both came from, I came from essentially the San Francisco of the Midwest, which was, ah, in no, Memphis. was that's where I started to do stand up. And there was a uh, uh, much more buttoned down, but uh, similar liberal 
uh, bent to the entire area when I was there. So you could not necessarily rumble in and get away with a bunch of uh, lowbrow stuff. You kind of had to think about it, find a way through it and see what you were doing. And then we also came along at a time, which I like to point out on the show a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, it was the aberration. We were living it and we thought it was supposed to be that way, but it was actually the aberration, which is somebody opened a comedy club and people just came and you got up on stage and started to tell jokes uh, prior to that. And post that 18 year period, you had to be either good enough or hooky enough to draw a crowd. Somebody had a room. They needed you to draw the crowd there for that 18 year window, 1980 to 1997 or whatever the hell it was. Mm -hmm. You could kind of just be there and people would go, let's go see a comic mm -hmm. and they would just show up. So there was a lot of comics in the all of the comics, bad or good, got just swept down this this flash flood of comedy and suddenly it's like oh god i gotta write material oh my god <laughs> yeah. start shoveling it doesn't matter that's kind of a shitty premise i don't give a shit i gotta get coal in the engine and we were yeah. all just madly shoveling for about two years and then you kind of are able to slow down if you get some success and go what am I talking about on stage? Why am I doing this? And you're talking about that process where you begin to kind of get the F stop down and go, what, what is Greg Proop saying? You're a guy to me who can write on paper and write on stage. Are you comfortable doing both? What's your process? Uh, I do both, Jeff. Uh, the last two albums, I've had premises and ideas uh, the one I did before the year before the in the city album, I had did, been doing the podcast all through the plague. So I had jokes from um, standup shows and podcasts I'd done during the plague. And I took some of the notes and jokes from those and, and remembered them and tried to, you know, kind of build around them as you do. And then this last one, I went in with nothing. And I thought, what can I do to just start telling stories? And then, so I went in the first night and we weren't taping. Like I taped it for myself and I ran through everything for like an hour and a half. And then by the second and third show, you know, we did it over four nights, right. Taping like hour or something, uh, start to select the stories and winter them down and fill them out. And so that's how I did the last couple albums. The one in 2018, the resistance I worked on a lot harder the writing of it because it had a lot more about gun control and, and Hillary and what happened in the 2016 election and what was going on in 2018. If you recall the insane hysteria of being in the middle of right. four years where everybody was losing their mind. Someone I said, I don't care if you don't agree with what I'm saying. I've been drinking vodka every morning for two fucking years. So <laughs> everyone can shut up. And, uh, so I'd go both ways. Like I'll try to write something out. And then when you write something and you work on it and then you write on it, when you finally perform it on stage or for the record, you want it to be word perfect, right? Because you've worked so hard to get the right adjectives and the right, you know, adverbs to lead you to where you're going to and the, and the, the flow of the sentences and then, of course, it never comes out that way. As much as you practice it 
there's going to be mistakes. And I like to, what, what did Leonard, uh, forget your perfect, uh, Leonard Cohen said, forget your perfect world or whatever cracks are where the light shines through. So I started to embrace that more. And during the podcast, where I would make a mistake, I would amplify the mistake, stop, go back, talk about the mistake make the mistake bigger and then go off of the mistake to make more and more references about the mistake right. to the point where the mistake seems like something you thought you were, the audience is like, did you make that happen? You know what I mean? Like, so yes, the last album, I thought, well, my biggest complaint about my last album, the new album is I don't find the right words all the time. You know, I'll be describing something and I, I can hear myself struggling for the goddamn words. Whereas if I'd sat down and wrote it, I might have thought of those words and then put them in there. So, right. But there's a beauty to it. There is a, there is a beauty to it. It, 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 The Leonard Cohen quote made me think of something Miles Davis said at one point, which is um, a Herbie Hancock story. He's saying he's with Miles and Tony Williams is on drums and everybody knows Tony Williams is like 15 years old. And it's an incredible period of Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock feels he plays a wrong chord to set up miles and miles tells him after, and he kind of freezes Herbie Hancock and miles says, it's, it's not the, it's not the note that you think is wrong. It's, it's the note after it that makes it wrong or right. Mm -hmm. Keep playing and circle back around, you know, make it right. And that's kind of what you just described in comedy. When you make a mistake, but you got to be loose enough and in the moment enough to ride it. That's what's interesting to me about comedy is sometimes, sometimes it's a full chart. It's a big band chart and yeah. you're just playing it. And other times you're just Sonny Rollins and he says, all right, let's do the blues and let's go. And you're just riding it. And that's way scarier. But there's muscles to it, and muscles you have exercised, Greg, in improv as well. 